you comes from our listeners and from the Maine Community Foundation, working with donors and other partners to improve the quality of life for all Maine people on the web at maincf.org. It's 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online at WERU.org. Coastal Conversations with your host Natalie Springle is up next. Good morning and welcome to Coastal Conversations here on WERU. We explore issues facing Maine's coastal communities through dialogue with people who live, work, and play on our coast. From fisheries to tourism, from energy to environment, from economy to ecology, we go beyond the social media sound bites, probing deeply into complex issues and solutions. Coastal Conversations is produced with help from the University of Maine Sea Grant Program, whose mission is to support Maine's coastal communities through research, outreach, and education. In partnership with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and the University of Maine, Maine Sea Grant brings marine science to Maine people. We're about to engage in the heart and soul of community radio, in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our coast and our communities. This is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, and I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour of Coastal Conversations. Today, our show is about Sears Island, past, present, and future. WERU listeners have been following events on Sears Islands for... Decades, I would guess. Um, The island off of Searsport has been targeted for industrial development numerous times, including an oil refinery, a cargo port, and most recently, a liquefied propane gas terminal. But industrial development hasn't occurred on the island yet. And um, in 2009, two-thirds of the acreage was protected under a conservation easement. Since then, the Friends of Sears Island have been stewarding the island's natural resources and human history and providing educational programs for all ages in its woods, fields, and shorelines. So our guests today are going to help us take a deep dive into Sears Island history all the way up to the present um, and also some visions for the future. So this this should be an interesting show. I know that many of our listeners have been following um, the events on Sears Island for really the entire time that the station has been in existence for the past 30 years. Um, so this is an issue that I think is near and dear to many of our listeners' hearts. And I'm excited to have in the studio with us today some guests who can help us understand the different stages of Sears Island's history and uh, where we are today. So in the studio with me today is Susan White, who is the president of the Friends of Sears Island. Hi, Susan. Welcome. Hi, Natalie. Thanks for having us. Great. Um, And then we also have Ashley McGuire, who's the outreach coordinator of Friends of Sears Island. Hi, Ashley. Hi, Natalie. Glad to be here. Thanks for coming. And we have Stephen Miller of the Islesboro Islands Trust, who's been involved in Sears Island-related issues for a long time. Hi, Steve. Hi, Natalie. Nice to see you. Great to have you. And at some point in a few minutes, we will also um, be joined on the line by Rolf Olson, um, who is the vice president of the Friends of Sears Island. And Rolf, I think you might be on the line. Hi, Rolf. 
Good morning. I'm here. Can you hear me well? Yeah, great. Gotcha. Great. Thanks. Great. Uh, so thanks to all four of you for joining us today. Um, and let's start by um, hearing a little bit from each of you um, how your connection to this island happened um, over the course of your time being involved in Sears Island and why the island matters to you. So let's start with Susan White, who's the president of Friends of Sears Island. Well, I think it's important to have places like Sears Island that everyone can visit and enjoy. And and Sears Island is a unique resource. Um, At 936 acres, it's the largest undeveloped island on the eastern seaboard connected to the mainland. And it has all the same habitats and plants and animals that are found on the islands that are surrounded by water. But it's so much more accessible because you don't have to take a boat to get there. And personally, I feel like um, taking care of the island because so many people have been involved for so many decades fighting to protect the island against um, industrial development and to conserve the land. So I just feel like I want to take to play my part in this. And I also really enjoy being on the island. And I hike there, I bike there, I cross-country ski, I swim a lot in the summer there. I look for wildflowers. There's some great wildflowers there. And I explore the tide pools. So, again, I just feel like I want to be part of uh, making sure that this special place continues and people can enjoy it. Great. Thanks, Susan. Um, Rolf, on the line, uh, you are the vice president of Friends of Sears Island. Tell us a little bit about how your connection to the island came to be. Well, I'm, I think, a relative newcomer. My wife and I built a small house in Searsport about three years ago as I was emerging into retirement. And but we've actually been coming to Searsport since the late 80s when our best friends bought a summer place right on the water facing the bay, the port, Sears Island. And so it's always been a, you know, a fixture in our minds. And we've seen many transitions over the years. And as Susan said, right up through the debate about the creation of the, you know, the large gas storage terminal and tank. When I got here, fully retired, and looked around to see where I could, you know, maybe apply some of my skills and experience in the in my new community. I uh, have a neighbor who happened to be on the board of Friends of Sears Island, and she was transitioning off. Thought maybe I'd be a good fit, and I attended a few meetings and really feel like I found a, a home there. And so since being involved, uh, again, my background is in nonprofit um, marketing, communication, fundraising, and development, and thought I might bring some of those skills to bear. Um, I'm also interested in making sure that Friends of Sears Island has a, a vibrant, capable, engaged, and active board, you know, to really fulfill the mission. Um, so, I'm, as I say, I'm a relative newcomer, um, but I am. my wife and I love going out there, walking the beaches at low tide, walking the trails, you know, and, and I've sort of emerged as a, an outside observer. And the more I've become involved, the more impressed I've been and, and getting to know Ashley and seeing the programming that she's putting together. Um, I, I just see Sears Island as such an incredible resource a small community like Searsport, and I'm very pleased to be involved. 
Great. Thank you, Rolf. And uh, you mentioned Ashley. So Ashley is one of our guests here in the studio um, who coordinates a lot of the outreach for the Friends of Sears Island. So Ashley, welcome. And tell us a little bit about your connection to the island. Yeah, um, I I grew up generally in this part of Maine, and I had visited Sears Island, you know, several times growing up. And then um, I have a background in doing environmental and out education and outreach work um, for nonprofits, and I had taken a little bit of a break when we had our kids, and um, we'd gone hiking there a couple of times, but I'd basically sort of just stayed near the homestead trail and the beaches that are, you know, close, immediate to the causeway. Um, and when I was sort of ready to get back into the workforce, I, I found this position with Friends of Sears Island, and it's been a really good fit for me. And I think the you know when I first started, I, I took a day to go out there and really familiarize myself with the island and explore the outer reaches. And I was just, I had a great time. I took my bike and um, biked all around, and I was I was able to cover a lot of ground. And I was really impressed by how beautiful the beaches are out on the southern end. And you know, unless you take the time to hike out there, you might not know that. But at the end of the Blue tra- Trail, it's really beautiful. And you know, on the Loop Trail, there's. Uh, you know, just nice, quiet solitude in the woods, and there's the old stone uh, walls that you see. Um, you know, there's the day I was out there, there were lots of frogs, you know, making noise in the vernal pools. And so, um, you know, getting to go out there as part of this position through the seasons has been really meaningful to me, and, and my love of the place has definitely grown, you know, over the last couple of years as I visited it time and again in the different seasons. And um, you know, seeing the the butterflies, you know, the monarch caterpillars, and then chrysalises, and the monarchs in the milkweed field out by the end of the homestead trail, and the wildflowers in the spring. There's just so much out there to explore in all seasons, and I I just love how accessible it is to people, and the fact that you can go out there literally any time of year and at least see a few cars, if not many, many more. Um, and you see people using the island in so many diverse ways too. You know, whether they're um, hiking or jogging or taking their dogs for a walk or letting them run on the beach, um, you know, or there's people out there doing recreational clamming or, you know, there's just people are using it for a lot of different things. So, Thanks. Yeah. Thanks. That sounds like a great place to visit. Um, and Steve, um, you are from Islesboro Islands Trust. Um, tell us a little bit about your connection to Sears Island, which probably requires a boat or a ferry for you to get to from your home. Well, it does require a boat, I suppose, if we were going directly from Islesboro to Sears Island, but it's very, very close to the northern end of Islesboro. I remember well a town meeting, I believe it was 1975, before uh, Islesboro Islands Trust was even created, at which time uh, the uh, Islesboro community at town meeting voted to oppose a proposal to develop a nuclear power plant on Sears Island. That wasn't the first time that Islesboro had expressed real interest in what was going on out there, which we might get into later. But um, it's very close. It's probably only about a mile from Turtle Head, which is the northernmost point of Islesboro. Um, And in the 80s, when Islesboro Islands Trust was created, um, we joined with the Sierra Club and uh, Conservation Law Foundation to uh, oppose a, a proposal for a cargo port on Sears Island um, and have been very involved with whatever happens to be going on at the time uh, ever since. And we do support Friends of Sears Island. We're uh, very enthused about their activities and uh, try to provide uh, 
moral, if if not at times, you know, some very humble financial support. So um, the island has uh, garnered a lot of support from various different factions over the years, from people who have memories of spending time there um, and experiencing the island in so many different ways. Um, I know we, we, we want to dive in a little bit to the industrial proposals, but before we go down that road, um, uh, which is the, you know, that would be the road why people have heard about Sears Island so much over the years. Um, but let's take a step back for a minute and talk about um, the earlier history of the island to kind of give it context. So who were, who do we think are the original people who settled on the island? Um, were there Native Americans who used it? And then how did that, how, how, what's sort of the human history of the, of the island? Right. Well, I'm going to try to do this in a very brief way because, of course, it's this. I'm compressing several thousand years. Yeah. <laughs> in five <Great>. minutes, hopefully. <laughs> Um, <clears throat> about 3,400 years ago, the first people used the island as a summer camping ground for hunting and fishing. Um, and at that point, it was called Wasam Keg, which means bright sands, because the sandbar there, the very long sandbar, has beaches on both sides, which they could see as they were canoeing in to, into shore. Is that where the, the causeway yes, is, is where at the, that sandbar? Yes, okay. that's exactly where it is. Um, and then it became Brigadier's Island, and that was in the middle 1700s. Um, Brigadier General Samuel Waldo went to England to get a land grant for his, for his business associates in Boston. And when he returned, they gave him half of the land grant, which um, included Wasumkeg. At that point, um, there were just squatters on the island, and that lasted for quite a few years. Um, then Henry Knox came along in 19, I mean 1794-95. He bought the island. He got rid of all the squatters, and he hired a guy named John Rayner to clear all the land, um, you know, to, to build the stone walls, to build the fences, and to dig the foundation for the farmhouse. And then the, after the farmhouse was built, um, it was leased to farming families starting in 1798 until the 1920s. Um, it was always leased. And, you know, I know it's called Sears Island, and we're going to get there, why it's called that. But um, they never lived there in that big farmhouse, and their outbuildings, and there are just remains of all that now that you can see when you go out there. And the stone walls, of course, are all there. So anyway... Um, <clears throat> During that time, it, you know, that there was grazing and farming on the island, and um, and then and then I was trying to remember the sequence here. Um, Henry Knox had to sell the island off because uh, to pay off debts, and he sold okay. it to three people, uh, three investors, and David Sears the first was one of them. So David Sears bought out his partners, and he ended up buying the island in 1806. And from then on, there were four generations of the Sears family who owned the island. And they were all named David Sears, which I think okay. is fairly interesting. Um, and that, and you know, they, they owned it for almost 100 years. They bought it in, in 18, um, David Sears the first bought it in 1806. David Sears the fourth sold it in 1905. So, um, and during that time, 
they never the only house that they lived in uh, David Sears the third built a summer house out on the southern end of the island and you can still see the remains of that it's out near the tower which is now a cell tower um, and but that's the only place that anybody ever stayed from the Sears family on the island but they owned it all those years um, and during that time they had potatoes and grazing you know they had livestock and <coughs> There were some salmon weirs and um, you know, and farming, you know, and you can when you go out there, you can see that it was a farmstead a homestead with a, a big farm. Um, the summer house on the south end was built in 1853. It burned down in 1893. It was never rebuilt. So what you see out there are just the remains from 1893. Um, so then it was the the Bangor and um, Bangor Investment Corporation, which was a subsidiary of the Bangor and Aroostook Railroad, oh. bought the island from David Sears the Fourth um, in eighteen. I mean, in nineteen oh six, and they. I don't know what they were planning to do with it. At one point, I know there was a proposal to have a resort on the island, and that I think was in that was in eighteen seventy four. Um, and that the only reason it didn't happen is because um, David Sears, the fourth, the, the, the second and the third had died right close to each other, and they were the ones who wanted the resort. So David Sears and his brother Henry decided to take, you know, to buy it back, and they continued to, um, and, and then he bought out Henry. So David Sears the fourth is the one who on the island at the end and could sell it to, to the Bangor Investment Corporation. The radio tower was built in 1971. It was a radio tower then. Of course, now it's a cell tower. Um, the, then the state bought 50 acres on the northwest side in 1985 with the intention of building um, a dry cargo port. And that's when the causeway was put in and when the jetty was built. And that all happened between 1986 and 1988. So people always ask, how long has this been here? Well, that's, that's how long it's been there. And that proposal was defeated in 1996. So nothing happened except people fighting against it for all the years that after the, the, you know, the jetty and the, the causeway were built. Um, but it never happened. So then... That was that. And then the state bought the entire island in 1997. Okay. And um, from the Bangor Investment Corporation. So they had owned it all that time. And it was not managed at all. And there were people camping out there and living on the island. Mm -hmm. Uh, Modern squatters. Yeah, modern squatters. (laughs) Right, exactly. Which people used to refer to them as gypsies. (laughs) So... Thanks for that history. What a what a rich history of use from a couple thousand years ago all the way up to the 80s or 90s. Um, I, I'm going to switch to Rolf for a sec- second here. Rolf, are you still still on with us? I'm right here. Great. Um, so as a as a uh, as you called yourself, I think a relative newbie to the region oh. and to the Sears Island story. Um, we, we've we've been brought up in terms of the history up to what I'm going to call sort of the beginning of the era of back-to-back proposals for industrial development. Um, what was your – what did you hear about? What was your understanding of this this period of history as you came into the community and started learning well, about it? Sure. 
Well, bear in mind that I actually lived in Maine um, okay. from the early 70s to the mid 90s, so almost 20 years, 73 to 92. So, you know, just in living in the Bangor area and actually for a while up in Rustic County. But I was very aware when there were issues such as the cargo port coming, you know, being a very contentious issue, uh, for example. Um, you know, learning about the nuclear power plant was, was somewhat new to me, but I certainly was aware of the Wiscasset plant being built, and I knew there were alternative sites. Um, you know, so I have only lived here for th- less than three years, but I've been aware, you know, my wife and I come here almost every year. She's from Maine, so we visit here, and we've been watching and aware, and, and most recently, of course, of that liquefied natural gas terminal, which was, that was a big, big concern of mine, even before we made the decision to, you know, to retire to the area. Um, And and as I think I said earlier, you know, once I became involved in the Friends of Sears Island group and saw the actions that had been taken in terms of preserving the island and, and the issues involved in managing you know, a 900-some-odd, you know, acre plot of land. It's it's really big, and we're a small group. Um, so I've, I've been diving more deeply into it, of course, and I realize that it takes money, you know, and it probably will take some staff beyond, you know, Ashley's part-time uh, ability right now, not only in terms of, of programming and so forth, but trail maintenance. You know, we're faced right now with the, dirt road that goes kind of over the spine of the island that's used for you know maintenance of the cell tower out there uh, for example and you know there are three three parties that could take responsibility and and fix the road but nobody's stepping forward to it. One of them is Friends of Sears Island. But, you know, bringing in a tractor and gravel and, and grading equipment to make it a safe trail for, you know, we're not interested necessarily in creating access for the cell phone companies. They've got their ATVs and they can get out there no matter what the weather and conditions. We want to make it safe and attractive for people who live here and who want to get out there and recreate you know, uh, at its very simplest, one can walk up that about mile and a half road out to what's called the jetty, and it's paved a very gentle incline. I think it's probably, you know, beyond the the angle that's recommended for handicap accessibility or wheelchair accessibility, for example. But it's very gentle, um, and so many people can can enjoy it. Um, Great. I, I guess I'm rambling, <laughs> but it's, you know, there's so many different issues to cover. Yeah. Um, if you're just joining us, uh, you're listening to Coastal Conversations on WERU 89.9 in Blue Hill and 99.9 in Bangor and WERU.org online. Uh, Coastal Conversations today is about Sears Island, uh, taking a look at the past, and we'll come up to the present here in a minute, and then hopefully taking a peek at the future um, in terms of what folks who are connected to the management and stewardship of Sears Island are seeing um, for in the coming years or hoping to have happen in the coming years. Um, 
Uh, our guest on the phone that you were just hearing was Rolf Olson, who's the vice president of uh, Friends of Sears Island. We also have Susan White and Ashley McGuire from Friends of Sears Island. And we also have Steve Miller of Islesboro Islands Trust here with us in the studio. Um, and Steve, uh, Rolf was just talking. Uh, he, he, he made the comment that when he was living in Bangor, I think he said in the 80s and 90s, he was very well aware of what was happening on Sears Island. And I think I'm, I'm in a venture to say that if you lived within 150 miles of the coast um, during the 80s, 90s, and 2000s, and you knew about Sears Island. It was making a lot of headlines. Um, can you, Steve, give us a, a bit of a – you've been involved for a long time in, in – um, uh, paying attention to the proposals for industrial development and helping uh, mobilize some work towards the future of the island. Can you can you help us understand a little bit of what was going on and why Sears Island kept being a target for so many different proposals? Well, I'm sure I can speak to some of that anyway. Um, I think I'll say, though, in addition to uh, Sears Island probably being sort of a known entity of some sort to those who would live within 150 to 200 miles uh, of the of the coast it's probably uh, a known entity to anybody who lives a few thousand feet from uh, Sears Island in part because um, E.B. White wrote eloquently of this challenge back in the 70s uh, when a <laughs> ironically named corporation called Maine Clean Fuels Inc. wanted to build an oil refinery on Sears Island <laughs> Um, I was actually in college at the time, so I wasn't myself very involved, but I do know that uh, Islesboro citizens were um, certainly as concerned as E.B. White was writing in in The New Yorker. But I think that, you know, the pivotal place that Sears Island uh, sits in uh, geographically um, and uh, its ecological niche um, and, uh, you know, the... uh, uh, the, the unspoiled uh, habitat of Sears Island certainly makes it uh, attractive to locals, as we've sort of been talking about. But but to, to people from considerable distance, I remember working with people in Sears Island over the years on, on one development proposal or another um, and hearing from those who uh, own hospitality uh, businesses in town and in the region uh, or in, in, in the neighborhood, uh, Belfast and so forth, saying that visitors regularly mention wanting to see Sears Island when they come to the mid-coast area. So, um, and, and, of course, the sailing in Penobscot Bay is legend. Um, and you cannot sail from East Bay to West Bay or from West Bay to East Bay essentially without being aware of Sears Island. So there are lots of places where uh, I think any huge range of, of different people uh, become aware of, of – I have become aware of Sears Island. But um, So in the 70s, there was this oil refinery proposal. Um, there was also a uh, nuclear power plant proposal or concept uh, floated by Central Maine Power Company in the – um, in the 70s and uh, later in the 70s, and that's when I became aware of what was going on out there. And then there was the the incredibly long and really fairly sordid history associated with a cargo port proposal with illegal filling of wetlands and lots of court activity and, and, and just, just uh, you know, an almost embarrassing string of, of, of events that um, 
that did generate some create some notoriety, I guess. Um, uh, it's been mentioned that uh, there was an LNG proposal, um, actually uh, main public broadcasting, um, who we love along with ERU, uh, first sort of broke the story about this LNG idea or a possibility uh, in uh, November of 2003. And uh, we uh, organized quickly, um, uh, had a press conference with people from Searsport and people from Islesboro uh, in the rotunda in Augusta uh, with our attorney. And the day afterwards, the governor decided that perhaps it was best to stop negotiating the possible sale of some of Sears Island and to get into a planning process, which had then became known as the Joint Use Planning uh, Committee, uh, that uh, extended from 2004 through about uh, 2008. Actually, the committee uh, agreed to uh, a plan for the, the island. Um, <coughs> In November of 2008, but in 2007 and, and into 2009, the Department of Transportation was still trying to uh, find a developer for a container port on Sears Island. So um, it seems, in a way, that the 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 you know hope springs eternal for those who think of Sears Island's uh, potential uh, economic benefits to, to uh, corporations or, or individuals um, without necessarily uh, spending a lot of time thinking about the public's interest, which has grown and is very evident, especially through, I think, the work of Francis Sears Island. And Susan, can you help us um, understand a little bit the transition from this era of sort of repeated major proposals for the island to um, the conservation easement and sure. the islands coming under a portion of the island coming right. under protection. And that and it also has to do with the, the official formation of the Friends of Sears Island, which was in 2006. And a lot of the people who were involved in those talks in 2004 against the LNG um, proposal kept meeting and meeting and meeting, and they it was first called Protect Sears Island. It was sort of a loosely, you know, organized group of people who just met. Um, but then that evolved into Friends of Sears Island being um, formed in 2006 as a 501c3. And um, then, as Steve said, the negotiations kept going on and up until 2009, which was when, uh, under Go- Governor Baldacci, there was that they reached a, a um, an agreement to have a conservation um, easement put on two thirds of the island. The island is 936 acres. The easement was put on 601 acres, and the other third of the island, 335 acres, would be under the jurisdiction of the Department of Transportation. Um, so that's that's how that all came into being. And at that time, Friends of Sears Island was sort of the de, fa- de facto steward of the conservation area. However, just in 2016, um, FOSSI, as we referred to it as... FOSSI is Friends of Sears Island. Right. Absolutely. Um, and they, we became the official land manager for the conservation area. And Maine Coast Heritage Trust holds the easement on that air on that conservation area we are the managers 
and the state still owns the whole island. Okay. And as I said, the DOT, the Department of Transportation, has jurisdiction over that that other third. And for and right now, the public, currently, the public still has permission to you to walk on the land, the, the third that is under the jurisdiction of, of DOT. Okay. Okay. Um, so we're we're up to the present, um, and I would like to open our phone lines if any of our uh, listeners have any calls. Uh, Rolf, we're gonna um, have to let you go so we can open up the phone lines. Thanks so much for joining us. That was Rolf Olson, who had been commenting a little bit earlier on the show, the vice president of Friends of Sears Island. Thanks, Rolf. And if you are uh, listening and have your own stories about um, Sears Island or questions for our panelists about um, the island over the years, um, we welcome you to call in. Um, our number is one 625 9378 That's one 625 weru um, And love to hear from you. Um, so... A really incredible history. Hard to keep track of all the different stages um, that have happened. But let's talk a little bit about the present. Um, We haven't heard from Ashley yet. Thanks for hanging in there, Ashley. Ashley McGuire is the outreach coordinator of Friends of Sears Island. Tell us a little bit about um, what you guys are doing to engage the public in connecting with the island. Sure. Um, Well, our mission is basically that we're committed to protecting the natural and cultural resources of Sears Island um, and also maintaining public accessibility um, for recreation and education. So, you know, really what we do is sort of a mixture of, you know, we maintain accessibility to the island by having, providing access to to four marked trails on the island. Um, We have built stairs down to the beach. You know, we have an informational kiosk that provides people with trail maps and, you know, up-to-date tide charts and information about programs and, and ways to get involved. Um, and we do sort of routine beach cleanups. We're actually doing one with kids this afternoon. Um, but then a- another huge part of our mission is is providing sort of free public education programming. And um, so when I came on a couple of years ago, we were doing um, mostly programs in the warmer months. And one of the things that's been nice is we've really been able to uh, over the last couple of years, um, offer programs year round and become more of this, you know, steady presence in the community and, and really get the education out, out there in all seasons. Um, so we've always done these natural history seminars, we call them, which are, you know, like what you would think of as a traditional nature walk. And, and we've covered topics like mushroom walks and spring wildflower, um, you know, hikes and things like that. Um, but then we also, have started doing um, programs lots of times we'll co-sponsor something with the Belfast library and have some indoor programs that are more conducive to um, a slideshow type presentation so this winter for example we had a talk on the rusty patched bumblebee and how it's Maine's newest endangered species and we we did a wildflower identification presentation recently where we showed photos indoors, which was nice because it's so hard to anticipate when they're going to bloom and when spring's going to actually arrive in Maine. <laughs> um, so we've we've been doing those sorts of things, and we usually have a great turnout at those events, whether they're indoors or outdoors. Um, and and we're going to continue doing those natural history seminars. But we've also been trying to look at you know, who our audience is and sort of diversify that audience and make sure that we're reaching different groups of people. 
Um, so one of the things that we, we started doing last year was we started having uh, at least once a season, we try to have what we call a wellness program, and that's to try to get people that maybe wouldn't necessarily come out to the island for um, a, a nature walk on a specific topic, but it, it get it might be targeted to people that want to come out and recreate on the island. And so we've done yoga on the beach. We did a Tai Chi class out there this fall. Um, we've had snowshoeing programs. We've been trying to figure out a way to get some sort of a, a guided kayak program happening. Um, so we're, we're doing those things, you know, a few times a year when we can. And then the other group that we've really tried to target um, in our programming recently has been um, kids and their families and so um, reaching out to that younger audience you know we talk a lot about stewardship and I think making sure that we're including programming for younger generations who are ultimately going to to be the ones that are going to take care of this land in the future is really important and you know while kids are always welcome on any of our programs a lot of times the content is geared more um, towards Adults and so having these these programs for families has been really great. Um, and we started off just trying doing them here and there, and then based on the good feedback that we received, we thought it would be really great to try to get something more consistent happening. And so we recently got a grant from um, the Davis Conservation Foundation to allow us to pilot a program that we are calling Science Squad. Um, for 2018 and so far it's been really great we've had um, once a month we do an after school program for kids ages 6 through 12 and we've had a great response so far Um, pretty much every month we've had you know the program fill and we often have a wait list we got some good press from the Bangor Daily News they came out and did an article on the program Um, and the idea behind Science Squad is um, it's a place-based after-school program that aims to engage children as scientists or explorers and stewards of their environment. Um, and so we usually have a different community expert lead the program each month. So kids are learning from you know marine biologists, retired science teachers, ecologists, um, environmental activists. So it's been really great to get different people out there and, and kids meeting people in their communities um, that have a lot of knowledge to share. We've covered topics so far like um, invasive insects, uh, winter survival strategies that plants and animals use to survive the harsh main winter. Um, we had someone from the Signs of the Seasons program come and do an introduction to phenology uh, for kids last month. Um, and then, as I mentioned earlier, we have a beach cleanup this afternoon. And um, Taking a drink. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Later this afternoon, um, we have our April Science Squad program, and we're going to have uh, a beach cleanup where uh, the kids and, and their far- parents are going to, um, you know, clean up the debris that's washed up from the winter. But uh, they're going to get data cards and that that list like you know the most common types of trash that are found on our beaches and so they're going to be collecting data for us while they do it and we're going to share that information that we gather with the ocean conservancy which will become a part of their global trash database um great yeah so and in another neat thing that happened that about this afternoon like 
uh, we have some people from the Ban the Bag and Belfast Initiative coming to speak to the kids. And then I had also invited a group of students from Troy Howard Middle School and the Captain Albert Stevens School in Belfast to come because they have an environmental activism group there that's called like Belfast Refuse, Reduce, Reuse, Recycle. Hopefully I got all the R's in the right order. But um, they've been doing a lot of work at their school and in their community um, to educate people about the problem with plastics in particular. And they weren't able to make it, but they were able to make us some really amazing little short videos. And so that was a great project for the kids there. And then I'm going to try to show them on my on my phone to the kids this afternoon out on Sears Island. But it's I think it's really great for them to see. It'll be really great for them to see what other kids are doing in their community and the difference that they're making. And hopefully that will be inspiring. So, If people want to participate in any of these programs, how do they get in touch? Yeah, good question. Um, they can go to either our website, friendsofsearsisland.org, or our Facebook page, which is just Friends of Sears Island. And there's always up-to-date information on there. Um, when you go to our website, if you click the events tab, any of our upcoming programs are listed. And when you click on that event, there's a link um, specifically for Science Squad, we do require people to register online so that we know how many kids are coming. And so sometimes we do end up with a waiting list. Um, but it is free, and you just go on, and there's an online registration form that they can fill out. But a lot Great. of our other programs, like the Natural History Seminars, people can just um, show up when they see it advertised, and, and we don't cap those programs usually. Great. Thank you. Okay. Um, you were just hearing Ashley McGuire, who's the Outreach Coordinator of Friends of Sears Island. Um, our show today, Coastal Conversations, we're talking about Sears Island, um, the past, the present, and the future. Um, and you're listening to Coastal Conversations on WERU 89.9 in Blue Hill and 99.9 in Bangor. If you have your own thoughts about Sears Island or questions um, for our guests, uh, we welcome your calls at one 866 625 That's 1-866-625-WERU. Question for all of you. Uh, So I think if I understood the numbers correctly, about two-thirds of the island is in a conservation easement that's held by Maine Coast Heritage Trust. And Friends of Sears Island um, manage that property. And then about the other third of the island is owned by the Department of Transportation um, from the state. Right. Is that correct? It's correct, except that the state owns the whole island. Okay. So the the, um, Department of Transportation has jurisdiction over that third. Okay. And um, what do you anticipate? Does the DOT, Department of Transportation, have plans for the island? I'm not sure if anybody actually, other than, uh, you know, representative of uh, Maine Department of Transportation could give you a, you know, a good answer to uh-huh. that. Um, as I mentioned earlier, there was a, an attempt in uh, 2009 or 2008, 2009 in that time period to actively solicit uh, you know, uh, private developers' interest in a container port. Um, my general read of the container business globally is that that's just not going to happen and I think that even uh, DOT has dropped you know so actively soliciting business interest. Just comment on on what about global trends is making you feel like it it's Sears Island is not a likely for a container Mm -hmm. port um 
containers are uh, large and um, need uh, fairly involved infrastructure in, in, in ideally a close market for um, things like, you know, uh, televisions from China and so forth. So um, those that, that kind of in- infrastructure doesn't seem to exist, and it seems from what I can gather anyway, and I'm no expert in this, but um, it does seem like there's been a leveling of uh, container traffic um, globally, not diminishing necessarily, but a leveling. So, um, and there are numerous other well-positioned container ports in the United States, um, you know, New Jersey and, and New York and, and Charleston, South Carolina are, are three that I know of on the East Coast that are huge and so very active. Anyway, um, so I, I did want to just quickly mention how phenomenal the education and outreach that Fosse is doing is, seems to me. It, it, it I think, says uh, so much about that organization. Um, uh, outdoor education, uh, uh, called by whatever name, <laughs> but outdoor education, environmental education, and so forth, is, is, a, is I understand it, a, a growing national uh, concern uh, in an uh, area of great interest. Um, it has a little to do with uh, providing kids with some alternatives to um, screen time. <laughs> um, but, but I think it's also just, you know, important in its own right as a way to connect with the, with the outdoors and with the forces that are driving things like climate and so forth. And so um, uh, Osborne Islands Trust has had a uh, education and outreach program since we were formed. And I've learned to check out the Fosse website just to see what's going on over there and <laughs> pick up a couple of good ideas every now and then um, because what they're doing is 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 cutting-edge stuff. It's it's really pretty remarkable stuff. Um, I just wanted to kind of say, uh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, great. Thanks, Steve. Yes, thank you. <laughs> and uh, Steve is from Islesboro Islands Trust. Um, uh so clearly in the outreach programming, you guys are engaging a lot of local folks, local people, local kids, local adults, local um, people schools. from schools, people from the region. Um, how? What's been over the years? So, so the island is owned by the state, parts of it in a conservation easement, but it's within the town of Searsport, correctly? Correct. Mm-hmm. Um, so what's been the role of the town over the years? Susan. Yeah, I can speak to that briefly in that um, we've had a great relationship with the town. And um, when we really started, since I've been very involved, to work closely with the town was when we wanted to put a new entrance, a more welcoming entrance to the island. And um, before it had a lot of – it had chain link fences and concrete barricades. And people said that they felt like they were going into a prison. I mean, it was not at all welcoming. Um, And so we worked. It took us over a year to do it, but we worked with Department of Transportation and with the town, and we got it done. Um, To to remove. We removed all of that and made it into – it looks more like a park now, which is what it should have been. Oh, and Department of Conservation, they were separate still when we were doing this in 2014. So they they were very involved in it also, just lending advice on what a park should look like. (laughs) <laughs> you know, and and also having it um, look like it was being much more better taken care of really helped reduce the vandalism that was happening up until then. 
Um, uh, one thing I did want to bring up, if, if we can, just talk about what the management challenges are. Yes, please. Um, because it is, it, as I said, we had been being the stewards of the island for, for a very long time, but uh, now being the official land manager, which is referred to in the conservation easement agreement as the land management entity, we are, the, we are that official body now. It's a huge responsibility. And so the difference between being the steward versus the land manager, can you... Tease yeah. that out for us a little bit. Yeah. I mean, basically what we agreed, Maine Coast Heritage Trust, Department of Transportation, and, and FOSSE, Friends of Sears Island, agreed, was that we would be responsible for coming up with the rules that would make sense for the island. And um, and they are giving us that power to do that. There are, the, the reason that it's a difficult um, – in any place, any preserve is difficult to manage for the same reason. It's conflicts of user groups. That's really what it all stems from. And in Sears Island in particular, we have horseback riders. We have um, people who want to use metal detectors. We had coyote hunters. We had, um, I mean, we've got so many groups here, people using drones that want to use drones over the island. Um, Is there commercial use of the island? Clamors or? It's not commercial, no. It's recreational clamming. And there's there's a very, you know, um, a, a very productive clam industry right now. I was talking to Bob Ramsdale, who's also on our board of directors, but has been the chair of the shellf- shellfish committee in Searsport for years and years and years. And he was just saying that they've got an incredible clam, you know, production right now. Of course, they do a lot of clam seeding projects. Okay, a lot of clam restoration too. Um, and I'm just going to um, take this opportunity to make a plug for next month's Coastal Conversations show, since we're talking about clamming, is going to be about the go- co-management of the softshell clam um, by municipalities um, in the Down East Maine region. So that's next Coastal Conversations show. So thank cool. you. <laughs> so, so anyway, that's it's been difficult. I mean, we, we, we found out uh, none of us knew that coyote hunting was a year-round um, there was a year-round season until the summer before last. A coyote was killed in the middle of the summer. Lots of people were out there hiking, having picnics, and there were people with guns walking down the paved part of the road, the, the jet, well, what we call the jetty road, um, with guns and a dead coyote. Um, so we immediately got together as a board and decided that was not okay because our, our main concerns are safety of the visitors to the island and to protect the island. So, you know, having horses on trails and going down, you know, going down a ravine to get to the beach, an eroded ravine, is not okay. Having them be on the trails trails, you know, where we have bog bridges, because um, there are a lot of wet areas, you know, that that's really destroying the trails. It's not protecting the island. It's not protecting the, the wetland areas. So, Horseback riders can ride on the gravel road and on the paved road. But there have been some real pushback from that. There have been some real conflicts with that. We now have metal detectors that that can only be used on the beaches because somebody showed up at one of our archaeology walks and they had used a metal detector around the foundation of the homestead on the homestead trail and they had an axe head that was from the 1800s. You know, and so the archaeologist leading the the, the uh, group said, "I know you hate to put up more rules, but 
So now they can be used on the beaches because beaches are already disturbed habitats. Um, it's been – it's a lot to manage is, is all I'm saying. And we're trying to do it in the most sensitive way possible, taking everybody else's concerns into consideration. And we're doing the best we can. Tricky management with multiple different kinds of users. And I just want to add one thing. We are having a, a coyote educational program that's scheduled when, Ashley? Um, September 11th at the Belfast Free Library at right. 6.30. Just their role in the, in the ecology and everything. Just, just trying to go about it that way. Great. Steve, you wanted to add something? Well, I just was going to ask Susan and, and uh, Ashley if they could maybe speak a little bit to the role that our potential role, I guess, or maybe the actual role today um, that the uh, Magnet School, Magnet Marine School um, and Town of Searsport and maybe even Unity College play in um, sort of the vision for the future, including management. Well, certainly Unity College has been involved out there both as interns in the summer helping with our stewardship management plan, um, which we've developed. Uh, but we've had a project out there for three years now, I think. We wrote some grants and were funded to do um, a stewardship management plan, which has a lot to do with revo- removing the invasive species and then monitoring sensitive habitats, having baselines and then having people go back and trying to you know, figure out the, the change over time. Um, the um, and then now we just recently ha- have a, a stewardship guide too. I should put a plug in for that, which is going to be on our website soon, which can be used by all land trusts and people who have conserved lands. Um, but beyond that, I'm trying to get back to it. Marine magnet. Oh yeah, that okay. So Unity College, that that's their. They've been very involved on that level, and they also their students have been doing projects on the island. The Magnet School, which is opening this September. Is this also known as the Ocean School? The Main Ocean School. Main Ocean School. It's called the Main Ocean School. Yep, and it is a magnet school. Um, Anyway, and I'm not going to go into what's that, except that the focus is on the ocean, ocean and the coast. Um, The island will be a, a, a living laboratory for them. I mean, that's one of the main purposes. Searsport High School had a class called Sears Island issues and possibilities for a couple of years. And they use the island a lot for their class. Um, And then because of budget constraints and everything else, um, that was discontinued. But I think that this school is going to play the same sort of role, um, which might be a good place to say that one of our, when we're talking about the vision and everything, we are um, going to start, you know, seriously looking at the possibility of having a small education visitor center on the conservation area. And um, Ashley can say a couple of words about that, just what, why that's an, a need of ours right now. Yeah, and there is, we should uh, make note that there is a pr- actually a provision in the easement um, yes. that that is a possibility right. to have some sort of a, a structure out there at some point. Um, and so, like Susan said, we're looking into the, the feasibility of that and you know, people have mixed feelings about that, obviously, because some people like the idea of keeping the island. I mean, there's the cell tower and clearly there's a paved road and a dirt road there, but they like the idea of keeping the island sort of wild. Um, but I guess, you know, when we were talking about it, you know, as, as the person that 
uh, is currently doing the outreach and education work. You know, I, I think it would be great to eventually see some sort of small education center out on the island, um, you know, being someone that is trying to, uh, you know, plan these events and having to always consider the weather and whether we have to cancel and having no indoor sheltered space. That's that's always tricky. Um, and, you know, I think I, I see the education center idea as, as something that would be a draw. Um, it would be a place where we could have interpretive exhibits or, or art exhibits, uh, you know, a place to learn and create and meet, um, store our equipment, and it would allow us to accommodate, you know, field trip groups or summer day camps and, and really continue to to grow, you know, within what our mission. So. Great. Um, so in the last couple minutes that we have left, um, I wanted us to, to hear from you guys about what you envision for the future. And so, Ashley, you've talked a little bit about the possibility for some sort of a visitor center kind of mm-hmm. structure. Um, how about you, Steve, from Islesboro Islands Trust, as someone who's been involved in sort of the politics and the development or not development of the island for a long time. What, what, what do you hope to see in the future on the island? Well, I would hope to see the uh, kinds of activities that are currently um, uh, being conducted there. Um, and, uh, of course, Islesboro Islands Trust has been interested in uh, permanent protection of the entire island um, forever. So um, that remains an interest of ours. Actually, there was a point in time when we were trying to negotiate the purchase of of Sears Island. There was a period of time when Department of Transportation's primary uh, ownership interest was really um, uh, unsecured. It was in a purchase and sale kind of agreement. It was probably one of the history's longest purchase and sale agreements ever. But nonetheless, they didn't formally close on uh, purchase until 1997. Um, so all of that time that the cargo port was being proposed and so forth, their uh, ownership interest was was limited. Um, so um, anyway, I think permanent protection is 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 desirable. Uh, I think for uh, a lot of the reasons that have been discussed, and I just would quickly mention that some form of conservation of Sears Island has been part of the conversation. Uh, with DOT and even coming from state agency representatives for years, for years and years. Um, in, in the 80s, we sat on something called the Sears Island Management Advisory Committee, and uh, there was considerable conversation then about conservation on Sears Island. So it's not a new concept. I think it probably has never, uh, the state agencies has never fully embraced total conservation of the entire island yet, um, but maybe. <laughs> great, great. So we'll we'll look to be kept posted in the future. Um, we've come to the end of our coastal conversation today about Sears Island, past, present, and future. Uh, thanks so much to our guests here in the studio, uh, Susan White. Rolf Olson was on the line earlier, and Ashley McGuire from Friends of Sears Island, and also Stephen Miller from Islesboro Islands Trust. Um, thanks also to our listeners. Next month, our show will be about collaborative management of softshell clams. Um, Coastal Conversations is produced with support from the Maine Sea Grant Program at the University of Maine, bringing marine science to Maine people. Join us from 10 to 11 a.m. on the fourth Friday of each month. Our show's theme music is A Following Sea and was composed and performed by Paul Anderson. Thanks to Amy Brown for engineering our program and stay tuned for On the Wing with Joel Raymond. This is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, host of Coastal Conversations, wishing you a good morning. Mm-hmm.
Support for WERU comes from our 